Okay, so what we're doing, just to kind of catch you up, is we're talking about our glorification, the glorification of the, uh, of the earth. And what we're looking at is how do we know there's going to be a millennial kingdom? And how do we know there's going to be an eternal order? How do we know these things are going to actually take place? So we began to look at the biblical reasons for that. So the first one, if you're looking at just at your notes, is because of the new covenant. So we read from Jeremiah, and we talked about the new covenant. And so based on, again, this covenant that God made, uh, which again is unconditional. Remember that when it comes to an unconditional covenant, it doesn't mean that uh, we don't have any obligations, but what it means is the covenant being fulfilled is not dependent upon what we do. It's, it's only based on what God's going to do, so therefore it's, it's going to be done. There's a conditional covenant where that's what God made with Israel with the Mosaic covenant. Basically, he said, you obey, I will bless, you disobey, I will curse. That, you know, that's the way that is. With the new covenant, um, we are saved by God's grace. That's it. He saves us. We, there's nothing we do to remain saved, nothing we do to get saved. You know, we believe what he says, and we're saved. And so it's, it's unconditional. Now, we're obligated to pursue holiness, but pursuing holiness and living in holiness, we don't do that to remain saved. God is the one who keeps us saved. Now, that doesn't deal with the question that we, some people raise because they get worried about this. What about the individual who never pursues holiness? Well, then that probably means they aren't saved. But there's no such thing as losing your salvation because you didn't do certain things for God. Um, so that's what's meant by unconditional. So based on the new covenant then, that's one of the reasons why we know that uh, there's going to be a millennial kingdom and what we call the eternal order. The second reason is, as we looked briefly at the land covenant, and what that is, is God made a promise to Abraham and a promise to David and a promise to the nation of Israel that they would own and live in the land in peace and safety and they would prosper and that's not yet happened. It's been done partially, but not in the way that's been prophesied. And so again, because we know that God keeps his promises, that promise has to be fulfilled. Therefore, we know there's going to be a millennial kingdom because in the millennial kingdom, Christ rules on the earth and the political center of the world is going to be Jerusalem. And that's where Christ rules from. So these promises or covenants that God makes they have not yet been fulfilled, and so because, again, we know that the character of God is he keeps his promises, these things will come to pass. And so that's, this, that's where we get the idea from, uh, that we can have confidence in God, we know these things are going to take place, these God said they were, God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful, there's nothing that is going to be able to stop God from doing these things. You and I can make a promise, and we can do everything in our power to keep that promise, but sometimes things happen that we have zero control over because we're not, we're not omnipotent, all right? So, but with God, there is nothing that can thwart what he's <coughs> promised and what he's going to do, and that's good. So the third thing, or the third reason is we're going to look at now is the Abrahamic covenant. So that's why we're going to begin with, uh, you can go ahead and open to Genesis 13. Uh, 
I'm going to read first from verse 7 of chapter 12, and then we'll get into chapter 13. <clears throat> All right, so in Genesis 12, verse 7, uh, it reads, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So the promise of possessing the land was only given to the descendants of Abraham, which is the land covenant. All right. So now we're moving to the Abrahamic covenant, which is much bigger. And so beginning in verse 14 of Genesis 13, it says this. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So what's important about this covenant that God's making with Abraham is that God is making the covenant with Abraham and his descendants. So it's not that we're going to forget Abraham and say, well, as long as his descendants get these things that God has promised, we're good. No. God said, I'm going to give it to you. So Abraham died, and he didn't possess any part of the land, except for a couple of wells and a burial cave. And so, again, when it comes to how we interpret the Bible, uh, I believe that we interpret the Bible literally, unless the literal sense or the literal interpretation doesn't make sense. So the Bible is not a hard book to understand in that sense. So when God says he's promised something to someone, that's exactly what he means. He means what he says. Um, and so uh, because uh, of God's promise to Abraham, that would then mean that Abraham must be resurrected. The Bible happens to talk about a resurrection that's going to take place. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the land has to be restored to Israel. Uh, so again, all these different things you might hear in prophecy are going to take place because of these promises that God has made to Abraham and to Israel, and because certain promises have not yet been fulfilled, they're going to be fulfilled. And so for us, as we look at it, that is, again, prophecy. That's, that's the future. Um, and so as you look at all the different news things that take place in the Middle East and whatnot, again, it's, it's central to our understanding it's, it's exciting to see what's happening in Israel. We just don't want to exaggerate what's happening. Some like, you know, there's always these rumors. Uh, for example, there, there are many passages in the Bible that says that there's a time coming when Israel is going to start making sacrifices again. All right? That would be the unbelieving Jews, the ones who don't believe in Christ, are going to begin to conduct sacrifices again. And they can do so only when certain things happen. Uh, they still have to find the exact spot in Jerusalem or in the temple area where those sacrifices can be made. They're very picky about that. Uh, and so every now and then there's rumors, usually coming out of different Christian churches, uh, that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Usually the best thing to do is just to ignore those. Um, it's going to happen because God said it is. And whether it happens next Tuesday, which it probably won't be next Tuesday, but if it happens in a couple of years, it's, it's what the Bible says. 
Um, and we know that there's going to be these sacrifices because the Bible mentions that when the Antichrist takes power, when he makes this peace treaty with Israel, he's going to break that promise at the three and a half year spot. And it says that when he basically goes into Jerusalem, he's going to stop the sacrifices. But the only way you can stop the sacrifices is if they're already happening. All right, so they're going to happen at some point, whether it happens before the tribulation, they don't have to rebuild all of it. All they need is the exact spot. I used to think that, um, but as I've read more and more and more and more um, from very knowledgeable people and looking at scripture, um, the temple only has to really be partially rebuilt for that. The main thing is the spot. So the rumor used to be that um, the Jews could not start doing that because the Dome of the Rock was in the way. Right. which is the big Muslim thing, which would be very problematic. But as they have continued to do excavations, they've come to realize that it's not in the way. Now, the reason why they keep discovering things through excavations is because of the way the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. When the Romans came in and began to slaughter the Jews and they set everything on fire, the temple, uh, because of the way it's constructed, on the inside, there's a lot of gold. A lot of the, a lot of the things are made out of gold, but you know, there's no windows. And because of how the stones are arranged, it's like an oven. So it, it heated up and it melted the gold and the gold basically would seep into all the crevices of the rocks and whatever. And so the way Rome normally did things is after they would sack a city, the way that they would pay their soldiers is they could go take whatever they wanted. Well, because of the gold that seeped into the crevices uh, of the uh, temple, what they would do is they would get horses and ox or slaves, whoever, and they would basically start pulling the temple apart and scraping the gold out. And so the temple, when it was destroyed, the, the rocks it was made with were just spread all over the city. Um, and so, you know, now, 1,500 years later or more, Trying to piece together where everything actually was is a little difficult. can be done, but it's painstaking and uh, whatnot. And so, anyway, once that was revealed, um, uh, it looked like, uh, you know, I, I think that's pretty cool news to hear that. Now, if you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 26 for a moment. Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus, I should say. And I'm going to start reading in verse 40. Leviticus chapter 26. Now I'll begin reading in verse 40. It says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of the fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them, and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments, because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, 
when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. So God is talking here about the guilt of Israel as a nation, and talks about this time coming when they're going to confess their sin against God, you know, for being unfaithful. They were unfaithful to God a great deal in the Old Testament. And so it came to a point, because they were walking basically contrary to God, God then delivered them to their enemies, and they were taken out of the land of Israel, and in essence, God walked contrary to them. So God says that there's a time coming that if they will accept their guilt, when that happens, he will remember uh, the covenant he made with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. So when he says he remembers, it's not that God forgot, but the idea is he's now going to consider that. So he says, but, but then in the meantime, he says that when they're gone, in other words, when they've been taken into the land, he says that um, he's not going to cast them away to the point that he will utterly destroy them. Basically, he says, even though this is going to happen, this is bad, you'll be punished, there will always, there's going to be a remnant. There, you're not going to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. And the reason why that's not going to happen is because God remembers his covenant. That's why you, throughout the Old Testament, you always see a believing remnant because it exists, but also because God will always protect it. Um, and we, we talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about the miracle of 1948. So some have said, when you read through the scriptures, some have said that Israel has already possessed the land as was prophesied in the Bible. But one of the things we have to remember is that when it comes to the fulfillment of prophecy, every single detail must be true, and every single detail must be fulfilled. Um, you, uh, uh, there's no such thing as a partial fulfillment, and we go, well, that's close enough. Right? God gives details. Those details are there for a reason. So when it comes to the promises that God has made to Israel, he said that when Israel possessed the land, they would be safe from both man, meaning their enemies, and animals. It's both. Animals and beasts. Right? So the reason why some say that Israel has already possessed the land, and that's an important aspect, because if Israel has already possessed the land, then all those prophecies about the land have been fulfilled and we're somewhere else on this time scale of, uh, um, of prophecy. But if they've not been fulfilled, then we're right where many of us think that we are. So turn to Joshua chapter 21, because this is the passage that many will come to or point to to say, ah, you're wrong, Israel has possessed the land, and therefore... Um, these promises are no longer lingering, so to speak, but they've been fulfilled. So Joshua chapter 21, and we'll look at verses 43 through 45. Joshua chapter 21, beginning in verse 43. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. 
all came to pass. So when you read that, people go, aha, there it is. It's a black and white. Well, several things to notice. Number one, first thing to notice is when you read through the minor prophets, uh, in other words, that's, that would not be Isaiah and Jeremiah and all that. So, you know, we're talking about Hosea and Amos and uh, Ezekiel. I mean, not Ezekiel, but uh, Zechariah and, and all the rest. When you all the passages in the minor prophets and the passages of the major prophets that were written after Joshua, they all speak of the land uh, in the sense of longing for the land to be possessed by Israel. So the, the, the reason why that's important is if Israel had possessed the land, they wouldn't be talking like that. They're all waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. So I don't think all those prophets are wrong in their understanding of what had happened in, in history. So even, even God speaks as if Israel has never yet possessed the land. And again, that's possessing the land the way that God had promised. Um, so, again, as God promised, he still points to that day coming. In other words, based on that, if God speaks as if the land was never possessed or is to be possessed again, then we have little ground to stand on uh, and declare that this promise is null and void because it has been fulfilled. The second thing is, when God talks about regathering Israel, who he has scattered because of the disobedience to be regathered, implies that they have been together before. They were driven out of the land by God, and God is going to bring them back. All right, that's what regathering means. It means you were gathered once, you've been separated, now he's going to bring you back together again. Then thirdly, the promises that God made to the major and minor prophets, again, have to be fulfilled in their entirety. And the main one is that Israel will possess the land as an everlasting possession. So again, for that to happen, they have to be brought back so that facet can be established, and so it will. So again, all those things, it's just really simple logic. All right, It's not yet happened. It's going to happen. God's going to regather Israel. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that when, when God speaks of a regathering of Israel, there appears to be two different regatherings. All right, so one regathering of Israel, Israel comes together as a nation, and we would give it a title and say that he regathers them in unbelief. In other words, uh, you have those who believe in God and those who don't. Okay, and, and that's happened, 1948. All right, there's a second regathering that he talks about, and that's a regathering in belief, where when, get, when Israel's regathered together, um, it would be basically all because of faith in God, and that's the future. Um, and when, again, when you go through prophecy and see what happens during the tribulation, um, a lot, there's a lot of death, um, and a lot of Jews are going to be killed during that time, just like a lot of Christians are going to be killed during that time. Uh, but there will be a large, again, a remnant, I should say. Not, I don't know how large the number is, but a remnant will be left. And they will basically be gathered together uh, and they will all be believers because they're going to ask for God to come and save them, in which he will do. So turn to Isaiah chapter 11 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 11. What we have here is, there are many different places to find this, but this is probably the most famous um, description of the millennial order. There was in, when Christ rules on the earth, what will the earth be like? And uh, in particular, what will Israel be like? So Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 6, it says, The wolf dwelling with the lamb, 
the leopard with the kid, the calf, the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child leading them, the cow and the bear feeding, their young ones lying down together, the lion eating straw like the ox, children playing over the serpent's hole. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. So this description, again, I believe is, is a, a literal one. This is exactly what it's going to be like. So we have the animal kingdom. Remember that when God cursed the earth, remember that in the beginning, God had all the animals come to Adam, and Adam named all the animals. Before Adam Eve sinned, there were no animals that were eating meat. Everything ate, everything ate plants. There was no death. There was no killing. Um, after Adam and Eve sinned, all that changed. And you'll notice that after Noah and his sons leave the ark after the flood, God then states that he will put on the animals or place on the animals a dread of man. And animals are terrified of man. Now, they'll come after us, uh, but usually it's out of fear. You hear that all the time. You hear that, uh, uh, like, for example, when a dog, uh, most of the time when a dog bites a human being, it's usually out of fear. Now, you can, obviously, you can train dogs now to, to do the other, but a lot of times you'll hear individuals when someone says there's a dog in my yard and I don't know where it came from, and some dog handler comes and you're like, why is this dog not attacking this man? Well, they know how to handle animals, and they've come to realize how to deal with an animal that's frightened, and that's what it is. Um, and same thing with, uh, with bears. You know, if you, if you see a baby bear, even though they may be cute, you don't go and play with them because mama bear will be upset because she's, what, afraid. Afraid you're going to cause harm to her baby bear, and she will tear you up. <laughs> All right? All right, so the thing is, is now we have this very unusual setting um, where we have all these different animals that are right now natural enemies with each other, as well as it says a child leading them. So if you've ever seen a video of a kid in the cow pasture and a kid is leading some cows over to eat hay, well, imagine now we have a kid out there playing and there's a lion and a leopard following the kid like a cow. Right? and your heart's not leaping through your chest because there's no danger, All right, which is pretty cool. All right, so flip to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, <clears throat> and I'll begin reading in verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So this view obviously is very different uh, from the way things are right now. And that day is coming as the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. So 
the, the millennial kingdom, basically, as the millennium comes to an end, it will culminate in the new heaven and new earth. And the earth will be cleansed of all corruption. So what we don't know is, we know that we will spend all of eternity living in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. What we don't know is, will this earth be destroyed and there's a new earth that God creates that we live on? Or will this earth be reformed through fire, purified by fire, and reformed by God to be the new earth? The exact details of which it is, you can't really be dogmatic on. But either way, sin will be eradicated. Whatever, whatever residue there is of sin will be eradicated. And we'll be living in the New Jerusalem, uh, which even though it has 12 gates, the gates are never closed. That's because they're not trying to keep anything out. Uh, there's no danger. Um, and then there will be uh, the new earth, and we will live there forever. And remember that whatever spot on the planet now you think is the most beautiful, that spot has been marred by sin. So it's not as beautiful as it could be. But there's a time coming when the whole earth will be sin-free. So I think most of it will look like Hawaii, but anyway, that's my, that's my prejudicial view. Uh, but I guarantee you that no one will be disappointed. That's for sure. No one will ever say, is this all there is? <laughs> it will not be that. So our pain will go away, there'll be no more death, and it will be great. So again, the, the reasons that we know that this millennium and this new creation are going to come is because of these promises that God has made. And there are specific aspects of these promises. Promises made to us, promises he made to Israel. And because God keeps his promises, then we can rest assured and be confident that these things are going to be so. And as we mentioned last week, then we know for a fact then that as a result, we don't have to really worry about all the things that we see taking place now. Uh, because in a sense, when the world comes to an end, it's only the world as we know it comes to an end. It's not the world, period. That's not going to happen. Um, and so there's no, there's no reason to, uh, to worry. So back to Romans 8 then. And I'll begin reading in verse 31 just to finish up the chapter, and then we'll begin to get into chapter 9. Beginning in verse 31 of, of Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now remember that as Paul's been writing, and he's writing about, you know, again, our future glory. He's been talking about the fact that everyone is guilty of sin, uh, and then talking about the way of salvation, and uh, then dealing with sin in the life of a believer, and the promises that God has made to us as believers, and that the Spirit now lives in us, and we're going to please God, and all these things. Um, if someone has a lack of confidence, based on everything he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? What he means by that, who of any consequence can be against us? That's really what that means. So even if Satan himself is against us, which I guess we could say he is, it just doesn't matter because he has no power over God. The only things he can do now are just the things that God lets him do. Um, God is able to stop him whenever he wants to. But then he reminds us of God's love for us. And that's what, again, all this is based on, these promises that God's given us, God's going to keep because, A, that's his character, but also because he loves us. And so he says, um, he 
who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the point that Paul is making is, so if God was willing, which he did, give us his son, his son died for us, then the bottom line is, is that he's going to give us everything he's promised. Because that, that, that would be the hardest thing. And, and he's demonstrated his love for us in doing that, so there's nothing to worry about. So, and because God has done that, then the question is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, who's going to be able to accuse us of something that's going to stick? In other words, who's going to accuse us of something that would disqualify us from inheriting all these things that God has promised us? And so then he says, it is God who justifies. So God is the judge, and God is the one who justifies. All right? Remember, the God is the one who declares us to be just, or he declares us to be righteous. Um, he says, who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the idea that uh, what Paul is getting at here is it really is, it's a courtroom setting. And so uh, Satan would be the prosecutor, and your lawyer is Jesus. And God the Father is the judge. So the odds are stacked against Satan. What's he going to really do? Number one, he can't tell God the Father anything he doesn't already know. The judge already knows everything. So Satan stands there accusing us of sin. And God says, why, well, I know that. Yeah, we already know that. And of course, my lawyer, which is Jesus, is... He's not there to prove my innocence. He's going to agree. Yeah. Yeah, my client did all those things. But the penalty's been paid because I paid it. I paid that. So the death's been paid. So there's no case. All right, if you, if you were arrested, let's say you were arrested 10 years ago and you were charged with shoplifting. And let's say that you were guilty of shoplifting. You were found guilty of shoplifting. And you were given, let's say, six months in jail. And you were given 500 hours of community service. And so you did your six months in jail. And you did your community service. And let's say that 10 years later, some, some prosecuting attorney who wants to make a name for himself finds out that you, let's say for whatever reason, you're starting to become famous. And he finds these things and says, wow, this person is guilty of shoplifting. We need to go get him. So you get arrested, makes the news, and you're like, what in the world's going on? And so they run into the courts as quickly as possible, and your court day is like the next day. Of course, that would never happen, but let's just say that it did. Right? You got nothing to worry about, right? You got nothing to worry about. So, and let's say that the judge who's presiding was the judge that was there when you were first arrested. So this prosecuting attorney gets up and says, Your Honor, this man's guilty of shoplifting. And the judge says, yeah, I know. We all know. What's the prosecutor going to say? Yeah, yeah, but he, he, uh, he, he, he has to serve time for that. And you say, yeah, I, I did. I did my six months. And I had 500 hours of community service. So there's no case, right? So it's not that you're innocent, because you're not innocent. You're guilty. But the penalty's been paid. Nothing's going to stick. You can't. You know, so in a small sense, that's kind of what, what goes on with all of this, is that 
God knows we've sinned. That's been paid. Of course, it's been paid by Christ. So nothing's going to disqualify us from receiving the inheritance that God has promised us or this glorification that we've been talking about. You going to say something, Howard? I was just thinking about a governor's clemency uh, as opposed to the trial. Same thing. You know, yeah. yeah, you do it the same way. I think the difference, though, with the clemency sometimes, which is okay, but a person can receive clemency and the crime's not been paid for, like the debt to society. So with this, the debt's actually been paid in full. So, you know, that, that would be the difference I would point out. Um, <clears throat> verse 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All right, so again, back to this question. God loves us. God has saved us. God's going to glorify us. Um, he's already dealt with this whole courtroom thing. So again, the question is, what is it? What, what thing, what power, what event is going to be able to separate us from God loving us? And so he then begins to ask and throw out these things. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So any of those things... Separate us from the love of God. So that's a rhetorical question where the answer is assumed. You know the answer is no. None of those things can. Then he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the bottom line is, is that even if death comes, it doesn't separate you from God. What we know about death is that unites us with God. All right. That puts us into the immediate presence of God. So this idea of all these threats, it's not like he's threatening a group of individuals who are, who are living at ease, because throughout most of history, Christians have faced these things all the time. Christians are facing these things now. All right? I don't know if you know this, but in, in North Korea, in the prison camps, a very high majority of all of the uh, prisoners in the prison camps in North Korea are Christians. And it's a very similar situation there that there was with the uh, concentration camps of World War II with the Nazis and the Jews. The difference is these are Koreans and they're Christians. So they do medical experiments on them. They starve most of them. Hundreds die every day there, all because they're Christians. It's just, you know, there's, the news doesn't really cover it, but it's not really a secret. Um, we, we know all about it. It's, I mean, it's bad. I mean, it's really bad. A few people have escaped and have been able to, to uh, tell what's going on in those places. But in many countries, that's nor the norm for Christians. So you, you come to these Christians who are already facing death and all the rest, and they already are aware that death and famine and all, it's not going to separate them from the love of God. They know that. And there's Christians throughout the world now that are facing death. Like, for example, in Afghanistan. You know, they're, they're hiding, but they know that the, the Taliban is looking for them. And they're going to kill them. Uh, and uh, they don't want to die, but they're not afraid to die. So he says in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so that's how it ends with this very, it's a very powerful statement when you think about it. He goes through all these various words 
to describe whatever it is might be in your imagination. And the idea is, is that nothing is able to separate us from the love of Christ, meaning nothing can stop God from loving us, nothing can stop what God has promised us from reaching us. Remember that human life, again, what the, the death that we're facing is a fact of life, it's a result of the curse of sin, and God says that we as believers don't have to be afraid of it because we know that even though the body will die, you won't die. And there is a difference. Um, this is, the body is, is temporary. We will always have a body. We'll just be getting a new one later. Um, but the idea is, is that um, uh, physical death is unable to prevent God's love the promises of God from being fulfilled in us. So now when we get to chapter 9 of um, Romans, I keep looking at the clock like it's the time, and I just realized again, it's not the time because it's not 3.20. Okay. All right. All right. So when it comes to chapter 9, chapter 9 of Romans is in some circles very famous uh, because it deals with some things that are um, considered to be controversial. Not really controversial. They're just hard to understand. Um, and so we want, we want to go through it and carefully examine what it does say and what it doesn't say and then draw the, the proper um, conclusions along the way. Just remember, I know that you know, when I'm talking sometimes it doesn't seem like we can do this, but if you need to stop me and ask a question, it's okay. Just raise your hand and I'll stop. Now... I will answer your question most of the time unless it's like two verses away. Then I'll say, hold on, and when we get to those verses and I explain them, if it's still not explained, then you can rephrase your question or whatever. All right, but we want to make sure we understand this because um, uh, we don't, you know, God doesn't want us, God isn't afraid of this, uh, but, it, but it is an area that can be hard to understand. So, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race. According to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what he's saying there, I think, is probably one of the most incredible statements that anyone's ever made. And that is, Paul basically says that if it was possible, he would rather be accursed, meaning he dies and goes to hell, and everyone who's in Israel believes in God and goes to heaven. That's really what he's saying. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not doing that. Okay? I mean, that's... I love my wife and my kids. I don't know if I'd say that. I know I'd die for my kids now, but to live in hell forever, to be a curse from God... Man, I mean, I know people will, oh yeah, no big deal. No, that's a big deal. Forever never ends. Okay? That's, a, that's, that's just, I, and, I, and Paul doesn't lie. Okay? He's not lying. He's, he says he's feeling this anguish. Now, I understand the anguish part. 
Okay, you know we have we have you know I have I still have grandkids who aren't Christians. Some of them are real young. So, uh, but I'm concerned. I want all of them to to know Christ because I want them. I want to be able to be with them forever and all of eternity. And that's the only way it's going to happen. You know, remember, hell's a real place. People are really to go there whether you love them or not. All right? Um, there's only one way to heaven. That is through Christ. And there's just nothing can change that. You know, that's a hard truth. But the great part of that truth is that God has made salvation available for everyone. And so, you know, it's not only for certain people or certain groups. You don't have to go to a certain church. You have to believe, have faith in Christ. You have to believe in the gospel. That's, that's the deal. Um, and so, thank goodness that's the truth. So here, Paul makes this incredible statement, and he, and he talks about all these things from Israel. Okay, When he makes these statements about Israel, he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. He's going, if you go back to the Old Testament, remember that God appointed Israel to basically represent him and reveal him to the world. That was the job that Israel had. They failed in the end doing that. But that was the job they had. So they were adopted by God. They, the glory of God was on Israel. Um, God made the covenants with them. You know, there's the Abrahamic covenant. Who do you make it with? Israel. You know, Abraham and Israel. The land covenant. Who do you make it with? It was Israel. Even the new covenant. Who do you make it with? It was with Israel. We participate in that, but he made it with Israel. Um, so it's a really incredible thing. He didn't give the law of Moses to the whole world. He gave it to Israel. That's who he gave it to. He gave it to them. They were to take care of it, obey it, and they were to teach it. All right? So they have, so what they have is incredible. And then that's where Jesus came from. Jesus, you know, no matter what people say, Jesus was a Jew. All right? There's no way to get around that. So in essence, basically as Gentiles, being non-Jews, everything we have spiritually, we owe to Israel. Okay, that's, that's who we owe. Um, all the great patriarchs, they're all Jewish. Um, so this little unknown nation, this little dot on the planet, um, has this incredible rich heritage that has blessed the world. Uh, but they themselves, they are stumbling over Christ, and they're not believing, and it's a mess. And God knows that, and, and said that was going to happen. And Paul sees that, and he, he really is yearning for them. He wants them. Uh, to, uh, to get saved. He has a very strong sense, sense of national and ethnic identity. Okay, he's not, he doesn't believe that Jews are better than everybody else, but that's his people. He wants to see his people uh, know God. So now he's going to explain. See, he said all that for a reason, okay? Because he's going to raise a bunch of questions. All right, so here's the deal. So if God did all that with Israel... If God made all these covenants with Israel, if God gave them and made with them all those covenants, if even Jesus himself comes from them, how in the world are they not believers? How does that happen? Paul is going to answer that question. And he's going to do that very thoroughly and raise even more questions uh, to make it really as difficult as possible. Uh, in other words, he's not trying to get out of this philosophically. He's not going to give some answer that sounds intelligent, but no one knows what you said. You know, that's, that's a, that's a, if sometimes if you talk to a professor, professors can do that. If you watch the news sometimes, or ask some professor about whatever, and he'll go through a string using all these $64 words. And all you know is, well, he's got to be smart because of what the words he's using, but I have no idea what he just said. So I guess it's correct. I don't know. All right, so Paul's not going to do that. 
All right, so, so he says in verse um, 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. All right, so there's all these different propositions or statements that are being made, whether they're true or whether they're false, or, or, or it's saying what is true, uh, what has failed or what has succeeded, what has not failed, what has not succeeded. All right, these are statements of fact. So fact number one, the word of God has not failed. So, that's the, so the problem isn't with the word of God. Okay, the word of God is powerful, so, but the problem is not the word of God. All right, he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, what does he mean by all of that? Okay, number one, when he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, the bottom line is, is that just because an individual is born Jewish doesn't necessarily mean in what Paul's talking about that they belong to Israel. Sometimes this, we could use this phrase, are they true Israel? So true Israel would be a way to describe Jews or Hebrew people who believe in Christ. Right? They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he's the Savior. So they're not just ethnic Jews, they're ethnic and they are both ethnic and spiritually Jews. So he says uh, here that not all Israel are Israel. That, that may be because they might be ethnically Jews, but they don't believe in God. They're not spiritually Jews. Okay? He's just making a statement. That's, that's just a statement of fact. Verse 7 And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So if you go back into the Bible, we know that Abraham had children from other women. All right, and we know that that was sin on Abraham's part, and the Bible talks about that. And so there are others in the Middle East that are ethnically descendants of Abraham. They're not Jewish, but they're descendants of Abraham. But those individuals, as it says here, um, um, are not his children in the sense of being his true children. In other words, what he's trying to get at is in the same way we're talking about what is true Israel. So the true children of, of Abraham are those who believe that are, they're, they're both related by blood and they believe in Christ. Then he says, because he says, uh, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So in other words, you have to be born ethnically if you can trace your lineage to be the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's what he's getting at. That's what he's dealing with there. Okay? And that, was a, and that was a huge deal there. It's not that big of a deal for those of us in America because we're all mixed up anyway. Uh, but there are many places where that's a real big deal. And so he's, he, that's what he's getting at. Then he says, verse 8, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what he's starting to get into then is that just because someone can trace their ethnic identity to Abraham doesn't mean they're true children because what Paul's getting at is the identity that comes through our spiritual relationship. Those who have exercised faith in God. Abraham is our father. He's our spiritual father in that sense. That's what he's getting at. Because again, remember, Paul's writing to both Jews and Gentiles. Right? He's trying to make sure they, they get this. And he's going to get into the real nitty-gritty, which we won't get to until next week. But anyway... Um, 
So again, he says, uh, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might, be, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So the reason why he gets into Rebekah and her children is this. is again because people put their main emphasis not only on ethnicity, uh, at least the Jews did, and many people back in these days did, but he's also he's, he's emphasizing the promise. It's the promise of God that's, that's the key here. So to make sure that God wanted to make sure he broke human tradition on purpose, he's pointing out that when Rebecca had her children, the normal order of things is that whoever's born first, everyone else serves him. He's the head. Okay? So you have Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest. He was born, he was the firstborn. So when God made his promise and talked about his descendants and basically the promise that God made to Abraham is what's leading to the birth of Jesus. So that's, that's, the, that's the focal point is Jesus being born and this promise being fulfilled that God has made to Abraham and to his offspring. So God is saying what's most important is who is the son of promise, meaning who have, who have I appointed? It's not based on birth order. So he destroys the birth order idea with Jacob and Esau. This wipes it out because the chosen one was Jacob. And he says this was before they did good or evil. Now the reason why that's important is because when you read Genesis and those Jews who are reading this, they already knew the story. They knew that Esau sinned a great deal and committed a big sin. Uh, in his family, and so their natural assumption would be, well, yes, because Esau disqualified himself because of what he did. You know, he treated his inheritance like it was nothing. But God is emphasizing that that had nothing to do with what God did. God made a choice. Before these guys did good, and before they did evil, God said, the older will serve the younger. That's it. Doesn't matter what they did. Even if Esau had never sinned, in the sense of the big sin, it still would have happened because that's what God said was going to happen. So that's what he wants to emphasize. That's what he wants these people to understand is that, it's the, that everything rises and falls on the promise of God. That's how we know that we can be saved. It's because of the promise of God. All right? Everything comes back to, to his word and to his promises. So that's what he's getting at. So this would mean much more to the Jewish person than it was, would be to the Gentile but he's laying it all out there so that we can understand the absolute power and sovereignty of God, which can make us very uncomfortable at times uh, because it raises all kinds of questions, which we will do our best to deal with as those questions come along. All right. Well, number one, we always want to, you always want to keep in mind as we work our way through this, who is God? God is always kind, he's loving, he's never evil, he's never sinful. God decides to do what he's going to do by himself, period. 
we don't have any say in any of that. Now, God, it pleases God. For example, we'll talk about prayer. It pleases God to work through our prayers. But he's never bound to that. Okay? So with my grandchildren, all right, in the end, when it comes to, let's say, gifts they get for Christmas from me, I decide that. Period. I have absolute control. If they don't have access to my money, they can't, they, they can't do anything. It pleases me to ask them what they want. When I get the list of what they want, I still decide if I'm going to get it or not. Of course, for me, I may not, I may not be able to afford it, but anyway. <laughs> right, but I'm still the one making the decision. Okay? So in one sense, they really have no say. They just, they're hoping that because they know I love them, I will take into consideration what they've said. Because there'll be times when they won't get what they asked for, and they're still usually pretty happy with what they get. All right? So when it comes to God, of course, we're dealing with eternal things, but God is sovereign, and so God is going to do what he's going to do, period. And that already makes a lot of us nervous because we have a hard time trusting a being with absolute power. But God's not like us. All right? So God's not moody. God's not like, you know what? I was going to do something for you, but I don't like the way you looked at me. You know what I mean? That happens sometimes, right? We, just, we change our minds for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we have no reason. All right? And so you have this being who is all-knowing and all-powerful, and it's kind of a scary thing, which in a sense is supposed to be, because what does Proverbs say? The beginning of wisdom, right, is the fear of the Lord, right? And that does, you know, people always try to get away from that. It does mean awesome respect, but it also means there's a sense of terror in there. That's there, right? We don't, we're not trying to get rid of it. It's not that we're running in fear and we're hiding under a bench, but there is to be that. And if, you ever, if you've ever been in the presence of any being who has that kind of power, not like God, obviously, but I mean, a, a, you know, um, for example, let's just say that, that um, I, I, I don't, there's all kinds of ways to illustrate this. If you were on parole and all of a sudden the policeman shows up at your job and you know that police officer can pretty much say whatever he wants to say, you, more than anyone else, you got to do what he says because your parole officer says the word, you go back to jail. You don't even have to commit a crime to go back to jail. If your parole officer says, put him back, they come get you. There's, there's no questions asked. All right, so when someone has that kind of power over you, it's kind of scary. I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I, I did, I knew a guy, I know this for a fact. He was on parole, he's living in an apartment building. He went out of his apartment, he's not supposed to be out of his apartment at, at 10.30, but he wanted a Coke, and he went downstairs to the Coke machine, and he was buying himself a Coke, and as things would have it, it ate his money, and so he's shaking the machine, trying to get his, his Coke, and guess who drives by? The policeman. Sees this guy banging on this Coke machine, and asking for his ID. He's on parole, and I guess they called his PO, and the PO said, where is he? And he said, well, he's out here by this Coke machine. He's not supposed to be outside of his room. Take him to jail. Man, I mean, that's just, when someone has that kind of, 
You're, I mean, what can you do? There's nothing you can do. That, that's, a, that's a helpless position. So when we speak of God being sovereign sometimes, we can feel that way. We're helpless because of his great power, which is, which is, a, which is true. That's why it's so important for us to know him. And that's why there's a huge difference between um, being related and not being related. And what I mean by that is this. When I was in Hawaii, there was a while I was managing Pizza Hut. And when I, and when I was just an assistant manager, I was in charge of the delivery, uh, home delivery. And so we had this one kid. He delivered things pretty quick. It's pretty obvious why he got things done pretty quick. Because he did not obey speed limit laws. I kept telling him, if you get a ticket, that's on you. Don't do that. Because if you get a ticket, I have to fire you. Well, he was doing 85 and a 35, and he got pulled over. The policeman, now, in that situation, a cop can even arrest you, I mean, when you're doing that. But the cop was his uncle. Now, so he was still nervous, but not as nervous if he didn't know the cop, didn't know the police officer. And he got a warning. Because <laughs> he came back and he told me, and I said, well, you got a warning. I said, I have to fire if you get a ticket. You didn't get a ticket, you got a warning, so you're good. But he told me that it was his uncle. All right, so the idea, though, is, is that his fear was lessened. It wasn't completely gone, but it was lessened because he was related to him. So, and he, and he, he knew he could trust him. Not that he would get away with breaking the law, but because the relationship, there, there was a greater chance for there to be what? Mercy, that, that kind of thing. So that's why when it comes to God, when we become believers, God is still sovereign. He's still the same God. We still have this, we should still have this great fear of him, but it's different because we now have this relationship. I've been adopted as his son. That doesn't change. I, I'm now his son. I'm not his enemy. If you read the Bible, God does treat his enemies different than he does his sons. It's throughout. There's a huge difference. Thank goodness. And thank goodness I'm his son. And thank goodness is not based on my behavior. Right? It's based on what Christ has done. So that changes the dynamic of the relationship. And that's what we want to keep in mind. But he doesn't, but he, but he doesn't alter who God is. Okay? Those hard truths um, remain as he tries to explain them. So we will then get into that next week because it's 8 o'clock. It's 3.20. Uh, yeah, it's 3.20. Yeah, so I've got, you know. Four and a half hours. So that's about how long it's going to take. No. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and your love for us, and we do thank you, Lord, for the promises you've made, and for the confidence we have that you will keep those promises. It means a lot of things are going to happen, but it means, Lord, that we're going to end up being with you for all of eternity, and for that we're grateful. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to think a great deal about that and, and to take comfort in that but also to make sure lord that we do belong to you and that we're not just kind of fooling ourselves we ask lord you keep us safe as we go home tonight as always we're we're grateful and we do ask these things in christ's name amen